are continuing our series that we started last week in Exodus. Exodus, the second book of the Bible after Genesis. We saw last week that part of why we're in Exodus is because Exodus provides many of the themes, the, you could say the, the categories that the Bible is going to use to explain how we find freedom, how we find life, how we find salvation. In other words, the better that you understand the book of Exodus, the better you can understand the rest of the Bible, the rest of Scripture. Last week we saw, or well, I guess I could say we introduced this theme of liberation from captivity. We looked at what is liberation. We looked at what is captivity, and we saw that just as the ancient Israelites were captive physically in Egypt, in many ways in our lives today, we find ourselves spiritually captive. Some things that we're aware of, some things that we're not aware of. We saw that we could think of these in three main kind of dynamics that are influencing our lives, that hold us captive. One of those could be our flesh. We just, throughout the morning, we were just talking about this and uh, talking about sin and talking about just these desires that can kind of hold us captive. We, sometimes we think in terms of addictions, things that work against what we think of being our will or having freedom, but these things hold us captive and work against us. It could be our flesh. It could be the devil, right? Demonic influences in our life. If, if we're kind of shamed by our guilt and our past, that could be used to turn us and direct our lives, to drive our lives, perhaps to keep us from running our entire lives rather than running to something good, always running from the past. We also saw, so there's the, the flesh and there's the devil, but also the world. Their influence is external to us in every generation that can hold us captive. It's going to be all different things. It could be ideologies. Last week, I, I mentioned just even in our day, something new is the algorithm, the power of the algorithm in our life. And like the whole room was like, Ugh. everyone immediately understood, right? I, 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 this hit me. Uh, I, I should have shared it last week, but I've had this thing for the last week and a half, okay? So since New Year's, we're on Instagram. I go on, and there was this pop-up ad for this pop-up sauna, Okay, where you could like buy the sauna and, and you could get into it after a good workout. And, and then if you buy it now, you get thrown in this like ice bath for free. And all of a sudden, over the next few days, I realized that I kept dreaming and thinking about this sauna. I have never thought about having a sauna or owning one in my entire life. But all of a sudden, I was dreaming about this throughout the day. When it was getting cold, I was thinking, man, you know, it'd be right, nice right now, sitting in the Starbucks parking lot, break out my pop-up sauna, right? Right here, right now. And then I realized I was going on Instagram and every like two or three posts was another ad about that same sauna. And as I could tell, I was looking at it. The algorithm was like, got him, right? And then it kept putting it up there. And then influencers out there who were using the sauna, their posts were being recommended to me and they were popping up. And more and more, I started thinking, I need this sauna. I will spend, I will sell everything I own and I will move into this sauna in my backyard, in the Starbucks parking lot, and my life will be fulfilled, right? And I sat there and I wondered, do I really want this sauna or does the algorithm want me? want the sauna, right? 
I, I share it because we laugh, but I think we all feel this right now. There are all these things around us that can be external that actually hold us captive, that drive our lives in ways that often we're completely unaware of. There are all these new ways in the modern world. It's changing, in fact, what it means to be a human being. It's changing what it means to have a will. This book, Exodus, is profoundly relevant for today. Because how are we to find liberation when there's captive forces all around us? Exodus exposes these forces that hold us captive and points where liberation can be found. Next week, well, I should say last week, we saw the circumstances of Israel being enslaved by Pharaoh in Egypt. And, and the question that's introduced there is how will they be liberated? How will they be freed? How will the chains come off? Next week, in chapter 3, we're going to encounter the liberator. Life himself. We're going to encounter Yahweh in the burning bush, the famous scene of Moses encountering him. But before that encounter, Moses is going to confront something. In the way that he tells the story of his birth and what we read in the scripture reading, and then we'll go a little bit further. We're going to go through all the way through chapter two. Uh, then his journeying, his exile, in many ways, Moses' life is a microcosm of exactly what the nation of Israel is about to face. And in telling his story, he's going to confront two assumptions that we often bring, cultural assumptions, that we would tend to bring into our search for liberation. But in fact, what Moses is going to demonstrate here is that if you, you hold on to these assumptions and you live in light of them, then actually it will hold you captive. In the search for freedom, we actually can be held captive and become further enslaved. So we're going to look at two of those assumptions, and then we're going to look at, in the end, just comfort. Some comforts that are, I would say, almost hidden here. They're, they're kind of like diamonds that are kind of, you see a little glimmer breaking out of hope, of comfort, for where we find ourselves captives today. So first, we're going to look at confronting the myth of who liberates, who liberates. Second, then we're going to look at confronting the myth of what we're liberated to. And then three, we're going to look at comfort for captive souls. So let's pray and we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we ask that you would, as we begin this series, we begin this journey through Exodus, that you would reveal to us where we are blind captives, uh, giving us hope where we know we are captive. Lord, when we, we talk about these ideas of captivity, bondage, our minds go to the places where we find ourselves in addictions, dependencies, going back again and again to the same thing, just feeling we can't break free of things, not being able to break free of our past, of shame, whatever those things be. As we go throughout this series, Lord, would you begin to give us insight? Would you, uh, would you reveal to us where we're blind captives, unaware of where we're captive? And Lord, would you bring freedom? Would you bring life? And would we become a people who are free people who help free people proclaim that message who live in light of that hope 
And so, Spirit, would you do that in each of our lives, wherever that's needed today? In Jesus' name, amen. So first, confronting the myth of who liberates. So we come to Moses' famous birth story, which we read in the scripture reading, but I'm going to walk through it here and add some commentary, beginning again in Exodus 2, verse 1. Now, a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. We're going to come back to that detail, but remember, the, Moses is a Levite. Right? Levites would become the, the Levites, the priesthood. But the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. Presumably at that point, he's too big, he's too loud. You can no longer, I don't know how you hide a baby for three months, but she managed, right? But now it's three months, can't do it anymore. Because at this point, if you weren't here last week, remember Pharaoh has issued an edict that all of the firstborn males of Israel should be killed. This is why she's hiding him. Moses is a firstborn son of Israel. So when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of ball brushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. This would be by the River Nile. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. So again, to get what's going on here, his mother puts him in a makes this basket, puts him in it, puts him by the Nile to hide him amongst the reeds. And then she sends his sister, who stands back at a distance, and she's just watching, presumably to make sure he's okay. This would be dangerous, right? It's not just the water. They're they're crocodiles, right? (laughs) Have you ever read any of those? Like, I read these books with my kids when they're going to bed, and I realized this last week when I'm reading about crocodiles. I'm like, wow, there's a lot more than just water that's putting Moses' life in danger. She's just making sure that he's okay. Now, the daughter of Pharaoh... Remember, Pharaoh's the one who said, kill all the males, came down to bathe at the river, so the princess, while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. So she sees the basket, sees the baby, has empathy. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him. She said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? So Moses' sister sees them find Moses, and she kind of runs up like, oh, you found a baby? And they're like, we did find a baby. And she's like, oh, my, you don't say. I have an idea. They're like, any ideas, please? And she's like, well, off the top of my head. Uh, something I haven't thought about before is perhaps, and she gives him a plan. Could we go find, because a baby would need to be nursed. They didn't have formula in that day. The baby would die. So they need a wet nurse. Verse 8, and Pharaoh's daughter said her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. So she goes and she gets Moses' mom. Moses' mom comes and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give you your wages. So now, not only is Moses going to be with his mother, but she gets paid to nurse him. <laughs> I was like, this is all the mothers say amen, right? This is fantastic. You're like, I love this story. We need to apply this more often, right? <laughs> so the woman took the child and nursed him. Moses's mother took him and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. So she presents her to Pharaoh's, the princess. 
She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. Moshe, in Hebrew, means to draw out of. She says, I drew him out of the water and saved him. Interesting details. If anything, one of the most interesting details is the silence. The silence is God's work behind the scenes. If any principle could be taken away, it would be seeing God's hidden care for Moses. Think about how vulnerable he is, how unlikely it is that these series of events would take place. God gave the wisdom to Moses' sister. God uh, cared for Moses in keeping him from drowning in that basket on the Nile. God gave his mother the idea, she even bringing him into the world, and then even providing this connection to Pharaoh's daughter and eventually placing him right there beside the throne in Egypt. So I can't move on without pointing out, you see, one of the things, one of the takeaways that you could say instantly from seeing this is how often when we think on our past, do we look at our past and, and interpret it through the framework of God's hidden provision and care in our lives? How often when we look at our past do we grumble, do we think of just the what-ifs and we go through the different course changes and whatnot and, and maybe even scowl and look down on, but the, in the peaks and the valleys, the fact was that God was there superintending your life to bring you to where you are here, that God is always at work in hidden ways, in the highs and lows, upholding our life and holding us. It's a theme that's going to come up throughout Exodus again and again. But it's setting up this idea that there is slowly being introduced here a true liberator. Chapter 1 ended with saying that Pharaoh didn't know the people. But God knows, and he cares. But the way that the details are recounted is significant for another reason, the details of Moses' birth. Uh, because they're almost identical to another ancient Near Eastern, a very famous ancient Near Eastern birth narrative about a deliverer. In other words, Moses is the great deliverer of Israel, and there's this story of his birth. And one of the things that's interesting is that in the ancient Near East, we have another story that's almost identical to Moses, that's very similar. And, and here's the thing, the reason why I'm bringing this now, because this is going to come up again and again, Exodus, we have to address this whenever you're reading the Old Testament, which is there are often parallels with other well-known ancient Near Eastern mythologies and stories. And we're going to encounter several in Exodus. Now, notably here, there are close parallels with the Egyptian myth of the birth of Horus, okay? It predates the writing of Exodus. And listen to the details of this story. It's a myth where Horus is born, and he's born, and the god Seth, who's the god of disorder and chaos, he kills his father, but then he also wants to kill Horus. He wants to kill Horus, and so baby Horus escapes by being hidden in a papyrus basket by the Nile River. His aunt will save him and raise him, and then his mother clandestinely nurses him and raises him. 
could go on and on about some of the details. I could put up a chart, but for the sake of time, it's fascinating how parallel the details are. The question then becomes, did Moses just copy that? Now, here's the thing. These conversations about these details of biblical literature and then also ancient literature are often ones that we avoid because we're uncomfortable with them. But I don't think you can ignore them. We could ignore it. Or we could consider, why are they so similar? And was it intentional? Uh, I didn't touch on an important detail last week about Exodus and its authorship. And was, it was written, Exodus is written by Moses. And Exodus is written by Moses towards the end of their time wandering in the wilderness. Years at the end of the Exodus narrative, we'll get there. But they're wandering in the wilderness after they're freed from Egypt. And you can imagine he writes the first five books of the Old Testament, what's called the Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy, to explain how they got there, who they are, where they're going, how they are to live. All those things are going to be covered. Because Israel, until that point, didn't have the Old Testament. We forget this. These, these people who are being written to, they don't have the Old Testament yet. They don't have a written record. They maybe have some oral traditions that are handed down, but they don't have the record of what happened. And additionally, the Israelites, remember, they have been here for hundreds of years, generations, raised in Egyptian culture. Been raised in Egyptian culture. They've now had Egyptians who come into their midst as they leave Egypt. And so they're mixing all of these cultural narratives and they give the template for how they understand themselves. The stories and the myths of Egypt were what they were raised on. If they were raised in the schools of Egypt, these were the stories and the templates they were given. Like, for instance, this is home for me because I, I wasn't raised in the church. I've mentioned this several times. And I was thinking back, like, what were the stories? I was raised in, like, stories of great sports heroes, but also my dad loved rock and roll. So, like, all the time, there'd be these stories about, like, Jimi Hendrix and Alice Cooper and all these guys. And it was like this was the template for how to understand what it meant to be a man and grow up and be a human being and life and value. It gave me the template. All of us are raised with those cultural templates. So knowing his audience, Moses frames his writing using the themes, the images, and the stories of those myths to expose where they're off. And he exposes the false promises and, and what, what's the word I'm looking for? The meaning that they give that the Israelites have taken in from them. This is often called what's called polemical theology. So I'm going to just read this from, a, from an Old Testament uh, theologian and kind of just use it as a way to frame this. Because I know as I open this up, you're like, where are we going with this, right? This is going to be very important as we go throughout Exodus. And it's going to unpack a lot of the layers of the meaning of what's being said. So the biblical authors are solidly monotheistic and Yahwehistic. In other words, they're not syncretistic. They're solidly theologically sound. And there is simply no room for alien pagan thought in Hebrew re religion. Therefore, they often taunt ancient Near Eastern myth in their writings. Polemics is one way of belittling and disparaging pagan myth. Why is that significant? Because Moses retells the historical details of his birth as a way that intentionally mocks and taunts the Egyptian myth. So when the Israelites would have read Exodus, they would have said, you know, they're reading it and they're going, wait, wait, have I read this before? Have I heard this? This sounds really familiar to that famous story that we've all heard and been raised on. But it's different. 
there's similarities and that highlights the dissimilarities. Here's how. Uh, unlike Moses, Horus will grow up in the myth to become the first national god of Egypt. Horus is the first national god of Egypt. So he has the same birth narrative as Moses, but he becomes the god of Egypt. Now, here's the thing. Then Horus goes and he fights Seth, who killed his dad, right? So he goes back, he fights his, his Horus, or uh, Seth, Seth, the god of chaos and disorder, then take, gouges out his eye, right? Awesome story, right? Takes out Horus's eye. Horus then comes back, though, he's like, uh, throws a punch, and he gets the eye back, okay? The eye becomes an emblem of power, prestige influence. Why do I tell you this? At the center of Pharaoh's crown is an emblem, and it's an eye, the eye of Horus, because Pharaoh was considered the incarnation of the god Horus. That's why it is the one that is being mocked and ridiculed. Moses deliberately retells the birth narrative to confront the assumptions that were from that myth. And what were they? The hope that liberation and life, the life we've always wanted, is found in playing God, in being Pharaoh, in being like him. The stark contrast between Moses' story and Horus's or Pharaoh's is that Moses doesn't become God. Moses isn't divine. He never becomes divine. Moses, throughout the story, is dependent upon God. He doesn't take things into his own hands. He doesn't try to become Pharaoh. He doesn't try to make his home in Egypt. He doesn't try to find glory in this world or in the glory of the Pharaoh or having his own will and determining his own way. But instead, the story plays out where he follows the true liberator. The whole place where the story veers off is into this place of saying, no, you're not meant to be a Pharaoh. No, you're not meant to determine all truth and all rights and all wrong and all value and all meaning and all purpose. You won't find freedom there. In fact, what will happen is you will actually become more captive if you do. The relevance for us is we have all kinds of similar cultural myths. Primarily, today, the, the, the myth of the autonomous self. That we're going to unpack this more as we get into, the, into Exodus, but autonomy. We've gone over this before here. Autonomy comes from the Greek word for autonomos, for own self. It's a combination word. To say autonomy means that we make our, our own law, sorry, Autonomos, namas word for law. So own law. We are a law to ourselves. We determine our own law. We determine our own way. What is right? What is wrong? What is meaning? What is true? What is value? What is correct design? In the modern day, our myth is that freedom, the life we've always wanted, is found in throwing off all the constraints, especially the constraints of any kind of a God who can make a claim against me or upon me. Throw off all the constraints to my self-expression to play God. 
And Moses, at the end of his life, is telling us, finding your hope, your liberation in yourself will deeply, deeply, deeply disappoint you. In fact, if anything, it will keep you captive to forces you don't even realize are there because you're not as free as you think to determine that. In fact, what will happen is either you will try to go on your own way and it will burn out and fail, or you will end up giving yourself to someone who you say, oh, but that person is influential. That person's the Pharaoh I'm looking for. If I can't become it, I'll follow them and they will exploit you. We're going to see these themes of the failure of trying to live autonomously and giving yourself to the Pharaoh. We're going to see this in the life of Pharaoh throughout the narrative. But liberation from whatever holds us captive, the flesh, the world, the devil, won't come through us alone, but through God. That's what Moses is saying here. When he tells his stories, he's painting this picture of how God has cared for him and God has delivered him. And Moses is going to live this life of dependence upon him. And he says, he's good. You can trust him. You don't have to take matters in your own hand and play God. Follow him. Don't give yourself to the pharaohs. Give yourself to him. Now, we'll return to that, but first there's another myth, the myth of what we're liberated to. So that's liberate, the, the myth of who liberates. The second is what we're liberated to. So poor Moses is just trying to make life work, right? And so look at verse 11 through 15, continues. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens and saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. So he kills him. And buries him. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, so now Moses is like, you know, the playground monitor, right? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And Moses goes, uh-oh. I thought no one knew about that. Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. And when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled because he killed an Egyptian. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. What's interesting here is we have Moses. And again, you're imagining he's at the end of his life. Remember, this is Moses at the beginning of his life just figuring things out. At the end of his life, he's kind of narrating it, looking back, and kind of giving wisdom as he's telling this story. And, and what's interesting is you can almost feel Moses saying here, as he was trying to make a go of it on his own, as he was trying to make a life on his own, trying to find the life that he, he wanted, trying to life, find this life of freedom, whatever you want to call it, just make a life. He encountered this internal thing that drove him. Here's what I mean by this. Throughout Exodus, as we saw last week, we're going to see both there are external forces that captivate us, like how they're enslaved to Pharaoh. We're also going to find that there are internal forces. The narrative is going to go back and forth with this. Internal forces that also captive, hold us captive. Our desires, our flesh, our heart, our souls. And what happens here is now we see this internal. Moses is the one Israelite that's not enslaved. Yet he's captive to something here, and it drives him to murder. What I mean by this is, again, that clue of back at, in verse 1, where I said, remember, he's part of the house of Levi? Here's the thing. Until this point, they don't have 
the Levites. They haven't become the priesthood. All they have is from a few chapters ago, if you were just reading from Genesis to Exodus, in Genesis 49, we have a prophecy about the children of Levi. And this is what it says. Simon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, not be joined to their company, for in their anger they killed men. That's it. Everyone else is like, you'll be fruitful and multiply. Here are the nations, right? And he's like, you guys kill people. You got some temper issues, right? What happens here is Moses, whatever you want to call it, this drive, this personality, one of the things for me, actually, in becoming a believer, one of the things that's been most sanctified in me is that I come from a long line of very hot-headed, blue-collar men. And I find that will rage up in me so quickly. I, I identify with Moses here. But it's this thing in him that drives him, that almost holds him captive, that drives him to murder. And then he's sitting at the well. You can imagine he's wondering, how did I get here in my life? Perhaps you're there today. Right now, life looks like that moment at the well. Or perhaps you've tried to kind of do it your own way. You've, perhaps you've just found there's just things that come up again and again, and you find yourself sitting there wondering, how did my life get to this place? You take solace in the fact that God's people, we've been there many times. Moses becomes a fugitive, and he runs for it. Continues in verse 16 through 22. Now a priest, the priest of Midian, had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs of water for their, water, or their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, he said, how is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Now, these details are interesting. They set up the next, some of the next part of the narrative, but they just kind of give us the details of God again intervening and leading Moses to this place where now he has a family, where he doesn't die of thirst in the wilderness. But what's interesting is, again, that last line is instructive because that highlights where Moses is again paralleling a well-known Egyptian myth. He tells his life story by essentially saying, I'm not like these Egyptian myths. And so there's this, in this last line, when he says, I've been a sojourner in a foreign land, it's going to make them say, wait a minute, because they've just heard a story that sounds like another story, but it ends differently. Here's what it is. So quickly, what's called the myth of Sanuhi. The myth of Sanuhi was another myth that they would have read or heard when they were raised in Egypt, which was essentially about the great, what it means to be a great citizen, the parallel details. He begins where he's going, there's this plot to assassinate the Pharaoh, he's caught up in it, and so he has to run into the wilderness, he almost dies of thirst, a local man brings him into his tribe, he marries his daughter, he's but then at the end of his story, it's almost identical to the details of Moses's. Predates it. But at the end, he's restored by Pharaoh, given riches and glory. 
And Sanuhu becomes the model Egyptian citizen. He becomes the the model, the, the template for what you're supposed to be an Egyptian citizen who when, even if you go into Exodus or you're, you're outside of it, then you pine to return to the glory of the nation. You worship the nation. You love the nation. You find your life and your glory and your identity in Egypt. So you can imagine if you're raised hearing the story of the, this great citizen who's not a sojourner in the wilderness but gloried in Egypt, Moses then comes along and confronts it. gives them history, and he says, actually, this world is not your home, that you are actually a sojourner in this world. Again, you can imagine Moses is, think about it, Moses is writing this as the Israelites are getting ready to enter into the promised land. Remember after, in that time in the wilderness, they're getting ready to enter into the promised land, and God has promised them, this is a, man, a land of milk and honey, of abundance, of riches, of blessing. You're going to be a nation. You're going to have abundance. And it would be so easy for the Israelites to begin to think that that was the ultimate goal, that the whole thing they're liberated to is stuff, comfort, pleasure. As Israel is going to demonstrate in its history, those material blessings were great if kept in perspective. But they would actually be their source of further enslavement. That very abundance in the promised land would be the source of soul enslavement, even while they were physically free, because they possessed them with the wrong perspective, and to the point where they went from an exodus to an exile. See, the same can be true today. What are we saved to? We can have all kinds of ideas of what it means, because we can think we're just saved to then now live a good life, a good moral life, which is good, and it's tricky because wisdom actually works if you have a good work ethic, if you are able to deny yourself, delay gratification, discipline, serve others, be joyful. It's going to lead to a certain amount of abundance, usually. But the point of our salvation, our freedom, is not mere stuff and abundance. In fact, one of the things we'll see throughout this series is that actually abundance now is becoming one of the modern forms, one of the things that enslaves us. But strong marriages, homes, families, a steady career, savings, freedom, these are all, these are all good things. These are blessings, but they're not the ultimate The ultimate goal is liberation to life with God, to walk with him, to know him. This is exactly what the, Old Test- or the New Testament is going to say about Moses in this very scene. It says in Hebrews 11, By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. What was that reward? The reward was the eternal city where he'd be in the presence of God. Those were Moses' riches. He kept in perspective all the things of this life. Those are good things, blessings, but in perspective, this is the ultimate thing. We're not liberated to this stuff. We're liberated to life with God. That gives perspective on all the good things and all the troubling things in life that we always have the Lord. 
It's important because, again, if we follow that myth that we're liberated to merely then the accumulation of stuff or liberated to just life in this world, then what will end up happening is that we'll find ourselves again captive, further captive. You'll be a target for exploitation. See, you're, I, I heard once uh, a pastor said, uh, wish I'd come up with it, but I didn't. He said, uh, you don't own your stuff, your stuff owns you. Often that is very, very true. We give ourselves just to get the stuff, and then when we get the stuff, then we got to give ourselves just to keep the stuff. We are not meant for this life in this world. We are sojourners, and that puts everything in perspective. Now, those two myths, what Moses is addressing, the myth of who liberates and who, it's not us, but then also, where is liberation? What's it to? He says it's not of this world. We're going to be unpacking those further in the coming weeks, but one of the things first that we see here that we want to leave with is comfort for our captive souls. Because here's the thing, as we go throughout this, Exodus has a way of just going like, see this, and you're like, yeah, and you're like, it's like, that's you. And you're like, oh, man, again. And you're like, see that, and you're like, yeah, that's you. And you're like, man, again, right? Like, again, and you realize, man, we realize how much we're driven and captive to these things. So what's the comfort in the midst of it? Verse 23 through 25 to end the chapter. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. This is the Pharaoh. He dies. There's a new Pharaoh. Pharaoh will never be named, as we said last week, just so if you missed it last week. Uh, the Pharaoh is never named because the Pharaoh stands for the timeless, anti-God, anti-creation, anti-human, anti-Christ dynamics of the enemy in this world. The people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their, rescue, their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob, and God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. God remembers his covenant. This says something about who God is. He is constant, that he is loving, that he is faithful. We're going to see more on this next week, but one of the things from last chapter we saw is that Pharaoh didn't know the people, and it's juxtaposed to this verse where God does know his people. And in the Old Testament, the Hebrew verb yada is a verb that means that's usually meant for like sexual relations. Adam knew his wife, right, for intimacy, for deep knowing and covenantal bonds. And what it's saying here is that God knows his people. He cares for them. He's one with them. He will be faithful to them. He will not exploit them. The whole point of this chapter is that we cannot free ourselves. In this world, it's going to be a constant fight. Pharaoh stands for the enslaving, exploiting anti-human forces of this world, but our God's heart is to set our souls free, and he knows us better than we know ourselves. And one of the other things we'll be exploring is that, like Moses, we are not only meant to find that freedom, but we are meant also to be those who bring that freedom to others. Free people, free people. We're meant to be people who find that liberation of things that we never possibly even knew we were held captive to. And as we do, that then the joy that we find in that, then that overflows to others, that they would know that freedom. But it starts with finding true liberation the way that Moses has. And many of the, the, the things that I, I referred to this earlier as like a diamond that kind of you could see it like in the sand, like kind of these treasures that are here in this text. 
So I want to end with these comforts, which first is that there actually is one who does liberate. Exodus comes after Genesis. You're like, thanks for that one, right? Great insight. But here's the thing. Exodus flows right after Genesis. It would have been one, they would have, like one, like maybe one scroll to the next. We've read Genesis, then Exodus, and it means anyone who read Moses' birth story would have noticed an echo from what came earlier in Genesis. The description of the basket he was placed in. Maybe you noticed this. It's almost identical in the Hebrew to Noah's ark and how it was built. Moses' basket is a new ark. It carries him through the waters, just as God will eventually then lead Israel through the waters to freedom. From a flood to the Nile River, he'll lead him through the Red Sea to freedom. Only when he does, he won't need an ark. The people of Israel won't walk through the waters and through the Red Sea. They won't travel through in an ark now. For the first time, they walk through on what? Dry ground. Why? Because they're covered by blood. Blood of a sacrificial lamb. Ultimately, whose blood does that point to? Again, remember verse 1 said that Moses was from the house of Levi. As I said before, these Levites will become what's known, or they, these, the house of Levi will become the Levites, which will become the priesthood of Israel. The priesthood who would administer the sacrifices, the priesthood who would apply the blood to the people and cover them. Only, whereas Moses was a Levite who would shed blood that would make him guilty, Jesus will be the new and better Moses, the new and true high priest who will shed his own blood in order to set his brothers free and to remove guilt and give forgiveness, to set our souls free from the guilt and shame that hold us captive, the ultimate freedom above all other freedoms. Jesus is providing us a new ark in himself. But not only do we have a liberator who is sure, we also have a true liberation to something, to someone. See, there will be another child who will be born in the future who will flee another pharaoh of another generation, a Herod. He'll flee into the wilderness who, like Moses, was an Israelite who became an Egyptian, only he will be God who will become man. And he'll begin his ministry with another sign, another sign of passing through water. He'll begin it with his baptism. Only this, this one, rather than being lifted up from the waters, will rise up from the waters. Why does this one rise up from the waters? Rather than having to be lifted up, he rises up from the waters because he has the obedience, the blood, the righteousness of the Son of God because he is Jesus, the second person of the Trinity made flesh. And when he does, then the Spirit will descend and the Father will declare before everyone as the Trinity comes back together and says, this is my Son with whom I am well pleased, this one in whom there is life and there is freedom. If you will come to this one, if he'll be your ark, if he'll be the one who you place your life in and place him in yourself in my hands, then you will find yourself liberated and on the other side. 
all throughout. I could go on and on. There are so many details in here that ultimately find their yes and their amen and their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. This is all pointing towards a true liberator. This is all pointing to true life because that true life that you are invited into is being a child of God who now you, if you are one with Jesus, he looks at you and says, you are my delight. You don't have to give yourself to all these things, being driven by all these things. But the thing that drives your life is my delight and my love and my joy in you. It drives you because you're no longer just running from your past, but you're running to your future, which is only to be with me forever. There is hope and there is comfort because that, no matter what we may find ourselves struggling with, no matter what you may find, drives you again and again and you find yourself in that proverbial well sitting there, what is going on in my life? Here's the thing, this doesn't change. Our sin, our failure, our dependencies, our captivity does not change this truth. So I'll end where I ended last week, which is as we begin this series, like the people here in this passage, cry out to God. The application is to pray and cry out to him, Lord, like Psalm 139, search me and know me, Lord. I don't even know where I'm captive. Search me and know me, Lord. I, I have this sense that I need. I want further life, more freedom, Lord. I want to know you in deeper ways. Cry out to him. And you can because there is a liberator and he will save you to himself. He hears you. He will free you. And next week we will encounter him. Next week we'll begin the journey to liberation from captivity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for these truths. Lord, these are big themes and these are dense passages. And Lord, help us to, wherever you would have us apply them, Lord, if we find ourselves buying into the myth that we can just play God and play Pharaoh and we can run this whole thing. Or Lord, if we find ourselves falling into the myth of that, that liberation and freedom will be found somewhere in this world and making a home in this world, that ultimately, Lord, those things will fail us. Lord, give us proper perspective. Help us to find life in you. Free us. Free us from the guilt and shame of our sin. Lord, free us from the different things in our life that are holding us captive. We aren't even aware are there. Would you break chains so that, Lord, we would find freedom and joy and life in you. Lord, give us the wisdom to understand these things. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.